Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Russia's position between Europe and Asia has led to differing conceptions of what Russia is to its leaders. Russia's vast holdings east of the Urals have often inspired those who led Russia to look eastward for national glory, whether through trade, soft power, or outright force. Yet these Russian pivots to Asia often ended soon after they began, with outcomes far more limited than what those who launched them hoped to achieve. Professor Chris Miller's We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin, studies many attempts to chart an Asian policy, from bold imperial dreams of a thriving Russian Far East to Soviet efforts to inspire the developing world through soft power, and why all these policies ended up disappointing their drafters. Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. He is the author of Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, and The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. He has previously served as the Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program at Grand Strategy at Yale, a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, a research associate at the Brook Institution, and as a fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Academy. Today, Chris and I will talk about Russia's engagement with the Far East, stretching from its initial forays on the Pacific coast of North America through to the present day. We'll talk about why pivots to Asia are so hard both for the Russians and perhaps for other great powers considering the same policy. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. My first question, I think, concerns geography. And in short, if you were looking at a modern map, where would you find the regions you talk about in We Shall Be Masters? Thanks, Nicholas. That's a a great place to start the discussion. I, I came to this book wanting to write a history of Russia's relations with Asia. Uh, and one of the uh, the first issues that I had to deal with is is understanding, well, what does this term mean? And I guess today we're in the midst of a, a similar debate about what is Asia, or there's this new phrase, the Indo-Pacific, uh, that's gained in popularity. And uh, this defini- definitional question is quite important. And in the Russian context, there's a number of uh, different terms that refer uh, to countries that one might describe as being in Asia. And, and the popularity of these terms and concepts has risen and, and fallen over time. There's the word Asia, Asia in Russian, um, which has a similar geographic connotation to the way Asia might uh, sound to a, um, a an English-speaking um, uh, person today. Um, but there's also other words that have been um, relevant in the past and are relevant today. One is, is the concept of the East, um, Vostok, which um, sort of today and uh, and over the past 150 or so years has had uh, the meaning uh, of, of what the Orient might have meant in English-speaking usage 100 years ago or, or even 50 years ago, um, referring to a much broader array of countries, not only those on the Pacific Rim, but Um, in some ways stretching in in Russian usage from the Balkans all the way to the Pacific Ocean, um, which is a much broader use uh, than than the word Asia. And then there's a third term that matters a lot uh, in Russian discourse as well, and that's the Far East, Dalnivostok, which um, refers more specifically to territories that are are bordering the the Pacific Ocean, 
um, countries like Japan, Korea, uh, and, and, and perhaps most importantly, China. Um, from my perspective, the, the, there were different drivers of Russian relations with these different concepts. Um, certainly the drivers of Russia's relations with the Balkans, although it might fit under the Russian terminology of the East or the Orient, uh, it was fundamentally different than what was driving Russia's relations with, with China or, um, or, or Japan. And it seemed to me that there were some striking similarities between uh, what was, was motivating Russia when it related to countries uh, on the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and above all, those were similarities of geography. So it seemed to me that it, the way to start the book was to group uh, the, the Pacific Ocean powers together, look at China, look at Japan and Korea, but also uh, a couple of external powers that have played a big role in, uh, in, in shaping power balances on the Pacific coast. Uh, and, and in particular, that would be uh, the United States and, and Britain in the 19th and 20th centuries. So interestingly, your, your book doesn't actually start in Asia at all, but in North America, um, detailing kind of Russia's efforts in Alaska, California, and I guess most surprisingly to me, Hawaii. Um, why start there? Well, if you think of how uh, Russia arrived on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, uh, it was in a, a very different um, way than most other European powers. Most European powers that uh, ended up in the Pacific Ocean uh, sailed there via the oceans. So they would uh, you know, send, send ships uh, around the Cape of Good Hope or, um, or, or through the Atlantic Ocean down uh, south of South America. Russia was different. It was never a great naval power. Uh, in, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. Um, but it, what it was doing was expanding across the Eurasian continent uh, through Siberia into, uh, into the, the, the Arctic North um, and the Northeast of the Eurasian landmass. And what that meant was that Russia reached the Arctic Ocean far ahead of when it reached the Pacific Ocean. And in fact, many of the uh, earliest uh, Russians to have reached the Pacific Ocean reached it from the Arctic Ocean. Uh, because the, the great rivers of Siberia flow north into the Arctic. And so those are the paths by which Russian explorers uh, transited. And, and so what that meant was that Russia's uh, first settlements in the Pacific um, of, of any sort of substance were, were actually really Arctic settlements rather than Pacific settlements. And it wasn't of much import to the Russians who were there in the 19th century, whether they were on the North American side or the, uh, the, the, the Eurasian side, because in fact, these settlements are, are really not that far apart. Um, and so when you, if you want to understand how Russia expanded its presence on the Pacific overall, you've actually got to look at Russia expanding its power from the north uh, further uh, to the south. And so the, the first uh, great and important project along these lines uh, was the attempted colonization of Alaska uh, in, in the 19th century. Um, uh, Americans often think about um, uh, the, the Russian presence in Alaska is, as, as being something that was focused solely on Alaska, but from the perspective of Russians who were building the presence in Alaska, and it was never a large presence, but uh, from their perspective, it, you know, Alaska was just a stepping stone to, uh, to potential further expansion. They were driven by the fur trade, which is a very lucrative uh, business at the time, but also driven by broader, broader geopolitical goals in a sense that the North Pacific was a, a territory in the 19th century that was up for grabs. And the challenge uh, of Alaska was that there were uh, there were plentiful furs, and it was easy enough to ship the furs from Alaskan waters to uh, Chinese ports, where they fetched a very high value. But uh, feeding your colony in Alaska was always a challenge, which is why, uh, from the earliest days of the settlements in Alaska, there was an attempt to open trade with California, then a 
Spanish colony or uh, to find new sources of produce. And uh, one of the, the places that Russian mariners often stopped while transiting the Pacific was on the islands of Hawaii, then under the control of two different kings. Uh, and they realized, uh, as many people at the time realized, that the Hawaiian Islands were perfectly situated uh, for trade in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and also had abundant uh, resources. And so there was a point in the early 19th century when there were Russians very seriously thinking about uh, a, a trans-Pacific Russian uh, empire that would stretch from uh, the, the Russian coast and the port of Ahotsk, which is uh, on the, the Russian Pacific, across to Alaska, uh, and then south uh, to California and Hawaii. And if you look at the, the trade routes and the, the routes by which uh, ships sailed at the time, this was uh, far from a, um, an outlandish scheme. Uh, in, in hindsight, it looks absurd. But uh, in fact, if you're going to, to travel across the Pacific, these were largely natural places uh, to stop, particularly given the importance of the, the fur trade and, and, and the transit of, of pelts uh, to China. Uh, and so there really was a moment in the 1810s and 1820s when it seemed as though uh, Russia might be a dominant, uh, if not the dominant power in the North Pacific, in part because it uh, was very early in trying to establish a foothold uh, in, in these uh, really important ports uh, in the North Pacific. So obviously the, the biggest other power in Asia, um, although obviously it, its power waxes and wanes, is China, and especially Imperial China. Um, and the relationship between Imperial Russia and Imperial China kind of is a central part of much of the history that you talk about in your book. But how did Russia's relationships with relations with China compare to the relations of other quote-unquote Western powers with China? Well, it, it, it's interesting. On, on the one hand, uh, the, the Russians always saw China as being uh, distinct from the European great powers that it had relations with. The methods of diplomacy were different. Um, the frequency of diplomacy was, was certainly different simply because of the logistics of getting messages uh, sent across the Eurasian landmass. But uh, you know, we, we know that the Russian government and the Chinese government had relations that dated back to the 1600s. Um, and had been in regular intercourse commercially, uh, politically, intellectually even um, for several centuries uh, uh, before the present day. And so there was this really deep relationship uh, between uh, the two powers, e even though from the perspective of uh, Europeans at the time, they seemed sort of on opposite sides of the world. You traveled to Russia from Europe by going across Europe and you traveled to China by sailing um, across the oceans. But from the Russian perspective and from the Chinese perspective, it was uh, simply a, uh, a, an overland journey. Uh, and it was a, a long journey that involved transiting Mongolian lands, via camel caravans. Uh, it wasn't an easy journey, but it was something that had been undertaken for uh, many decades. And so from the perspective of, of Moscow and the perspective of uh, Beijing at the time in, in, under the Qing Empire, um, the relationship was nothing new. Uh, it was something that had been a mix of competition um, and cooperation. There was always uh, relatively extensive trade, even though there was at the same time uh, from both powers a uh, an interest in, in, in probing weaknesses and seeing where a territory could be grabbed or advantage um, could could be gained. And so when you look at uh, the, the competition between Russia and China in the 19th century, which is something that the book focuses on, it 
you can't really understand that, I think, without putting it in perspective of the previous couple hundred years, which is to say that this is nothing new. The, these two great Eurasian empires were always um, colliding, interacting, uh, and, and trying to gain advantage uh, over one another. I think uh, one one difference uh, between Russia's relations with, with Western powers, European powers, and China um, was an intellectual one, which is that uh, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Russian elite uh, was uh, was extraordinarily Europeanized. They would speak French. They would uh, vacation in in the south of France or in the Swiss Alps. Uh, and so, more so than any other point in Russian history, uh, the Russian elite in the 18th and 19th century was a European elite. And of course, that 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 created an even greater gulf between uh, where the Russian elite was in terms of thinking about foreign policy questions and where the the Chinese leadership was uh, coming from very different intellectual um, starting points. Uh, so that that is that is an important difference. But I think even then, some of the uh, there's a lot of unexpected um, uh, interlinkages between Russia, Europe, and uh, China. One of my favorites is one of the early treaties in the in the 17th century negotiated between the Russians and the uh, Chinese was actually uh, translated by a Jesuit uh, priest who was advising uh, the the Qing government. Uh, and was was one of the few people who could uh, 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 speak and write in a language that was both comprehensible to uh, Chinese leaders and Russian leaders. So although there was a, a vast uh, gap in, in terms of how Russians and Chinese at the time saw the world, there nevertheless were a lot of similarities that sometimes even ran uh, through Europe. And then the other, I think, kind of big relationship um, in Asia, at least involving the Russians, is, is the relationship between Russia and Japan. Um, obviously, as your book notes, um, Russia takes a keen interest in in opening up Japan, and that doesn't quite work out. And then um, they start trying to compete for influence in Northeast Asia with Japan. That also doesn't quite work out, um, coming to a head in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. I guess kind of looking throughout the book, kind of, kind of how do you see the relationship between Russia and Japan um, developing over this period of history? Well, I, th- I think one striking point is that the amount of uh, of interrelationships between Russia and China is always been vastly more than the linkages between Russia and Japan. That's true historically. It's it's true today. Um, and for most of uh, the history recounted in the book, all the way up until the middle of the 19th century, uh, the biggest challenge Russians faced was uh, trying to uh, to visit Japan or learn anything about Japan at all. Um, the the book starts with a, 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 the example of a Japanese castaway named Dembei who became uh, who who's a a sake trader uh, whose ship was cast out to sea and accidentally landed in Kamchatka and was taken all the way to Moscow uh, and and met Peter the Great, um, which is a I think a fun anecdote to underscore some of the connections, but. The, re- the reality is that is that actually the the key challenge for the Russians was trying to get into Japan in the first place, and just as uh, many of the European powers, the United States was trying to quote unquote open Japan uh, to trade in the 19th century, the Russians were doing the same thing, and they'd be trying even longer than uh, many European powers. And so it, it wasn't until you had uh, the the big domestic political shifts in Japan in the middle of the uh, 19th century and the decision to open up to the outside world that Russia really began to understand what was uh, what was occurring inside of Japan. And uh, I think the, the dilemma that Russia faced is that it had treated Japan for so long as a 
as a country that had lagged behind technologically, economically, et cetera, that in the late 19th century, it couldn't update its uh, assumptions about Japan rapidly enough to take into account uh, the rise of Japanese power in the latter decades of the 19th century. The victory of Japan uh, over China in the Sino-Japanese War was something that Russia didn't take all that seriously. And so as uh, in the, 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 at the end of the 19th century, in the early decades of the 20th century, as Russia was pushing uh, its empire um, um, further into China, grabbing uh, Chinese territory, building railroads uh, through China's Manchuria, uh, Russia didn't take Japan's uh, views on the issue seriously at all. It didn't take Japan's threats seriously either. And so uh, as a result of this incomprehension of Japanese power, Russia found itself in 1904, 1905, in a disastrous war with uh, Japan, which of course it, it lost in the end. And so I think it's 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 important to see the Russia-Japan relationship both as a, as, a, as a contentious relationship throughout history, which it certainly has been, but also as a relationship far more so than the Russia-China relationship based on uh, a lack of understanding and a, a surprisingly not deep reserve of knowledge about uh, Japan in, in Russia. And that's something that's persisted for some time and, and I would argue persists uh, in, in many ways to this day. Yeah, one one thing that kind of struck me on on reading the book, especially let's say around the the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, um, they seem very worried about the yet about yellow peril. They seem very worried about, um, I guess, having large populations of Asians in the Russian Far East. I guess overthrowing the government. Um, I mean, in some Tsar Nicholas seems to have very says a lot of not great things about um, Asian societies, Asian people. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess kind of. In your view, did, and if they did, how did these kind of prejudices about race affect how Russia related with Asian powers during this time? Yeah, it's, an, it's, a, it's a tricky question, I think, mm. to, to fully answer, in, in part because the, the discourse of, of the Yellow Peril, which really peaked in Russia, in, I, I would say around the 1890s, um, but, but has been present before and after in, in, to, to, to different degrees, always had a fundamental contradiction at the center of it, which is that on the, on the one hand, there was a sense of peril, um, i.e. that Russian power was at risk, Russian sovereignty was at risk, uh, combined with this sense of uh, Russian superiority over, um, over, the, uh, over its neighbors in Asia, the, the Japanese, the Chinese, and others. Um, and and this, is a, this is a hard set of um, views to hold simultaneously, that you're both superior uh, but also in, in peril. Uh, and, and certainly there were different iterations of, of, of this ideology present among different Russians, and uh, it changed um, over time. But I, I think it is striking looking back at, at, at sort of how hard it is to understand uh, the roots of, of the Yellow Peril discourse uh, in Russia, looking at objective factors. Um, it's, it's hard to understand what they were particularly afraid of. Uh, certainly there were um, a, a large number of people um, in China uh, and a smaller number of people in Siberia. Um, but of course, the, the, the Russians technologically in the uh, latter part of the 19th century were, were far ahead of, of, of where China was in many ways. And, and the, the Chinese were angry about certain territorial changes that Russia had uh, made in the middle of the 19th century, but had bigger problems to deal with than, uh, than with Russia. So in, in some ways, I'm struck looking back at the irrationality of the the yellow peril discourse um, above all. Um, but I, I think it, it, it is fair to say that uh, 
there certainly was a deterioration in certain Russian leaders' ability to accurately uh, assess international politics in the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century because of these racial prejudices. And I think the best example of this is uh, Tsar Nicholas II, the, the last Tsar, um, who plunged Russia into the war with Japan, I think in, in no small part because he was fundamentally un, uh, un, unable to take the Japanese seriously as a, as, as a political force or a military power. Uh, and I think part of the explanation for that is, is certainly in, his, the, the, in, in the many mistakes that he made and, and just his, his general uh, ineptitude as a czar. But I think part of the explanation also stems from um, his, his, his prejudices that, that he uh, developed over the course of uh, his education and his, his childhood. Nicholas II is interesting because he's the uh, Russian leader who, of all Russian leaders uh, up to that point or since then, has had actually the most uh, experience in Asian countries. Uh, he was sent by his father, the Tsar, uh, for a, a grand tour um, of Asia before he, he became the Tsar. Now, unlike most uh, European princes who would do a, a grand tour and visit Florence and Venice and uh, study the great works of the Renaissance. Uh, Nicholas's father, uh, I think, somewhat wisely said, "You need to understand this other part of the world that borders us, Asia." Um, but Nicholas's uh, travels across Asia, from India to Southeast Asia to um, to China and Japan, uh, certainly didn't uh, improve his understanding uh, of, of these countries much at all, and and if anything, only intensified his his, his sense of prejudice against them. So then, kind of the big, you can call it a. Well, actually, a, a big transition point, I feel like, for Russia's relations with, with Asia, as then you, again, bring up your book, is the Russian Revolution and the launch of the Soviet Union. Um, although now that I've asked this question and thinking through your book, actually, it changed a little bit, but doesn't quite go all the way and reverts back to, reverts back to form. I guess, how then does the launch of the Soviet Union um, then change kind of Russia's attitude towards Asia? Well, there's, there's one big and obvious way that it, it, it changed things, which is that the, the Tsarist government, uh, insofar as it had a guiding ideology, it was a guiding ideology that mattered only for Russians about respecting the Tsar and, and upholding the existing social system, whereas the Soviet Union always had a ideology that it thought was globally relevant of, of, of communist re revolution. Um, and at, at first in the Soviet Union, the sense was that this uh, this ideology was primarily useful in Europe because uh, kind of the, the simple version of the story is that uh, Marx had uh, taught that that you you need a you need a a, a working class in order to have uh, a revolution and and Europe had the world's uh, most developed working classes in Asia at the time outside of Japan in particular uh, there there weren't very developed working classes most people were peasants so Asia seemed less ripe at first for for revolution but after the earliest uh, couple of years of, of, of Soviet power in the 1910s and 1920s, uh, when it became clear that uh, all of Europe wasn't going to, um, going to, going to be overturned by, um, by communist revolutionary forces, Russians began to turn back to Asia as, as the, the, the Tsars had before as a place where they could exercise um, influence internationally and also as a place where they could push against European empires that were still present in Asia in the 1920s and, and 1930s. And so uh, in, in some ways, the, the tactics were new, the uh, tactics of starting up communist political parties, uh, trying to spread ideology, most notably in, in China, where 
the Soviet Union played an absolutely fundamental role in the establishment of the Guomindang uh, and the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which is historically somewhat ironic given that uh, those two parties found themselves uh, at odds for much of the middle of the 20th century. Um, but the, the tactics that the Soviets used were, were, were new tactics that were um, that, that stemmed from the Soviet Communist Party's experience fighting the czars. So uh, establishing secretive party cells, uh, trying to find ways to smuggle arms across borders. This was sort of this was this is revolutionary politics rather than uh, great power politics as the czars practice. But even uh, in the period where the Soviet Union was trying to spark a revolution in China in the 1920s and, and, and to some extent in the 1930s, there, there was a, a real sense as well in which this was a continuation in some ways of, of czarist Russian policy. And of course, the Russian revolution might have been a, a revolution about international communism, but it was, uh, it was, it was implemented largely by, by Russians. And so many of the prejudices and the assumptions that were present in late czarist Russia carried over naturally uh, into early Soviet Russia. And so now as we, we look uh, as a hundred years have passed on uh, Soviet efforts to spark revolution in China in the 1920s and 1930s. I think what's really striking is is not the extent to which Soviet efforts were were new, all of the tactics were updated for the times, but rather the extent to which they actually fit in this broader pattern of uh, of of Russian interest in 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 China and other borderlands and attempts to uh, expand Russia's influence in, in these territories. Um, as, as a means of bolstering Russian power on the world stage. So now kind of looking at this whole history, um, you know, Russia's attitude towards Asia seems very changeable. It's expansionist at times. Russia sees itself as an Asian power. Um, at others, it's passive and, dis- and disinterested, um, seeing itself as a European power. Sometimes this happens within the same I guess, kind of within the same period of, of leadership. So the same leader will have these same thoughts um, throughout his rule of Russia or the Soviet Union. So I guess, why is Russia's approach to Asia so so changeable? Yeah, well, I think one of the, the key things that, that is, is crucial to, to realize is just how far uh, Russia's own Asian territories, the, the territory that the Russian, uh, Russia calls the, the Russian Far East, along the Pacific Ocean is from Moscow. It's a, um, you know, it's a seven or eight hour flight from Moscow uh, to, to the, the easternmost portions of Russia. Uh, and in the times before there were uh, planes and before there were even trains, it was a, a days or months long track. And so this logistical factor matters hugely and has mattered hugely throughout history. It matters because it's hard to get military forces from uh, the the center of Russia to Russia's Asian territories. It's difficult to control uh, politics along Russia's Asian borderlands because they're so far from Moscow. And so there's always been a bit of sensitivity in Moscow about uh, whether they've got a, a, a stronghold on local politics in the area. And there's also, uh, no less importantly, been a less understanding in Moscow of countries in Asia. Japan, China, et cetera, than there has been of Russian understanding of countries in Europe, uh, simply because a far smaller share of the Russian elite has spent time or studied uh, countries in Asia. So there's much less depth of understanding. When you combine this logistical issue, which has always been present, uh, never been resolved, 
with the intellectual worldview of a Russian elite that is still very much tied into Europe, thinks of itself, even when they're angry at the Europeans, they think of themselves in the same context as Europe's elite. Uh, these have been two very powerful factors that have limited Russia's ability to uh, exert power in Asia over the long run. And so what you find is bursts of enthusiasm, uh, periods of intense effort driven by a specific czar or a specific ruler where they want to focus on Asia. And at, and at that time, because of the way Russia is uh, and has historically been governed, where uh, the, the leader at the top has a, a strong ability to shape foreign policy priorities, it's possible when they're focused on Asia to devote a, a large number of resources uh, to the region to, and to focus foreign policy uh, on, on those questions. But the natural tendency of the Russian bureaucracy, of the Russian elite, is to devote most of their energy uh, towards European affairs. That's a tendency strengthened by the logistical factors I mentioned and strengthened also by the intellectual assumptions uh, that, that I mentioned. And so what this means is that the moment a leader takes their primary focus off of Asian affairs, off of China, off of Japan, off of the Pacific Ocean, sort of like a pendulum naturally swinging back the Russian uh, bureaucracy and the Russian state, uh, the Russian leadership began thinking more about Europe because that's their natural, um, that's, that's their natural point of orientation. And so it's created over the past uh, couple hundred years of history, a, a pendulum-esque swing, except that the pendulum metaphor is actually too regular and too predictable. It's, it's an even, uh, it's like a, a jerky pendulum that Russia jerks towards Asia in a, in a spasm of enthusiasm and then loses focus and is yanked back to focus on Europe by the, by the strength and the inertia of, of the Russian bureaucracy and, and, and the Russian uh, logistical system. Uh, and so that's that's why you have this back and forth uh, motion. And I think the really the really surprising thing uh, that emerged from this book is that although it might seem sort of obvious that uh, Russia's interests are primarily in Europe, if you look at a map of the Russian population, uh, most of the population lives within a couple hundred miles of European borders, all of Russia's history, most of Russia's trade, even today, despite all the conversations about uh, trade with China, all that is focused on Europe. So it might seem obvious that Russia would want to devote its attention to Europe, but there is this uh, repeated historical trend of Russian leaders thinking this time is different. This time, uh, I, the czar, I, the general secretary, I, the president of Russia can uh, score a new success in Asia and, and achieve what my predecessors failed to achieve. And I think this uh, repeated a sense of over-optimism is absolutely crucial for understanding why Russia keeps trying again uh, to play a, a major role in Asia, even though the historical track record is actually as uh, much a track record of failure as it is a track record of success. So Russia's multiple pivots to Asia upon reading your book kind of reminds me of another pivot to Asia. Um, and I'm using that term deliberately, uh, namely the long-running effort by the United States over the past decade or so to shift its attention to the Asia-Pacific region. Um, is there anything from the Russian experience that might help to explain why America's pivot to Asia sometimes seems so difficult? Well, I think one of the, the things that's striking when you look at countries' foreign policies over the long durée is the extent to which the individual actions of leaders often begin to fall from the foreground and, and these broader 
um, structural factors begin to play a larger role. And obviously individuals can have a huge influence on the course of history, but nevertheless, it, it does seem like the natural orientations of bureaucracies, the uh, intellectual assumptions that elite groups start with uh, do have a really strong uh, influence on what it is possible to accomplish if you're a leader. And I think one of the challenges of, of leaders of any country uh, is that uh, particularly if you're an autocratic leader that has a fair amount of personal power, you can get a certain thing accomplished while you're focusing on it. But the moment you turn your focus away, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy, the security services, the military revert to their, um, their preferred way of business. And, and that's certainly how the, the Russian experience has looked over the past couple of centuries. And I think when you look at the United States uh, today, vis-a-vis the Asia Pacific region, it's perfectly possible for secretaries of state to issue grand strategy documents, but actually uh, a substantial portion of, of foreign policy is in the implementation. And implementation is done by bureaucracies, it's done by institutions, it's done by, uh, it's done by elites that shift over time. And it's only so possible to move these institutions uh, in the time that any given leader uh, is in power. Institutions always uh, move slowly. And it seems like one of the dilemmas the United States has faced is that although it's possible to say we're going to prioritize our affairs in Asia, uh, in fact, the U.S. from a foreign policy perspective has uh, has interests in, in Europe and the Middle East and, and all over the rest of the world. And so whatever the strategy document says, and whatever the speech of the Secretary of State says, uh, the reality is that the, the ship of state turns uh, very slowly and and often uh, the, the, the bureaucracies in question are just waiting for the leader in charge to circulate out, and have a, have a new leader with a different focus uh, come into power. And so in that sense, I think there is a, a, a fair amount of similarity between the difficulties that the czars faced in getting their uh, country to focus more on uh, ties with Asia and the difficulty that American secretaries of state have faced in terms of uh, the gap between their promise to focus on Asia uh, at the start of their time in office and the reality is to where they actually spend uh, their time and spend their political capital uh, while they're in office. So I'd like to, for the last question, um, I'd like to pivot back to Russia and Russia's attitude towards the Far East now. Um, and what's happened in the region since you published the book? Um, I remember there were protests in the region last year and early this year, though I believe nothing substantial came of them. But I guess, I guess, kind of what is Russia's current attitude towards the Far East? Well, if you, if you look solely at Russia's relationship with China, uh, which is the most important of Russia's relations in the region uh, today, uh, at least on paper, Russia has an excellent relationship with China. Uh, Xi Jinping has referred to Vladimir Putin as his best friend. That's a direct quote. Um, they've celebrated birthdays uh, together. So there's great interest in both Beijing and in Moscow in playing up um, the depth of the relationship between those two countries today. But if you zoom out from the particular of that relationship, and it, in particular, if you zoom out from the theatrics of that relationship, which I think are a, a really substantial part of, of what's actually going on, uh, what you'll find is that although Vladimir Putin has for uh, almost a decade now talked about a turn to the East, which is the current uh, phraseology used by the Russian government, uh, talked about uh, reasserting Russia's position in Asia, making uh, Russia a, uh, a power across greater Eurasia. Um, in fact, when you look at the, the deeper drivers, I think you find much less change uh, than 
the Russian government would like to have us think. Uh, for I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one, if you look at uh, how Russia's uh, interacted with other powers in Asia, uh, excluding China, what you'll find is actually that there hasn't been much uh, increase in uh, diplomatic relations, much increase in trade, much increase in um, Russian influence, whether it's uh, Mongolia, uh, either North or South Korea, um, Japan as well. So uh, in, in some ways, the Russian turn to the East uh, as they like to describe it today, has actually been a, a turn just towards China. So less less substantive in some ways than uh, the rhetoric might suggest. But I think more important actually over the long run than that is when you look at the Russian Far East itself, the, the, the Far Eastern territories in Russia. And there what you find is although there are um, really substantial cities in Russia that are uh, due north of, of Beijing, for example, in fact, the populace of this region remains resolutely focused uh, on the European portions of Russia. Uh, we've actually seen a, a really substantial decline in the population of the Russian Far East over the past couple of decades, in part because people are actually moving uh, to, to, to Western and Southern Russia. So there's actually been a, a population shift out of the Russian Far East. And those uh, who have stayed in the Far East have uh, in, in no ways uh, reconceptualized their identity as, as a, being Asian at all. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. There's uh, concern about uh, that type of identity and concern about uh, Asian Asian settlement, uh, whether it's, it's it's Chinese or from other countries in Asia, uh, in Russia. Probably not very warranted, given that the numbers are quite small, but nevertheless, that concern um, is real. And although the Russian government is very keen to talk about its friendship with China and other countries in, in Asia, uh, you don't have to dig very deeply uh, beyond the surface to find that uh, many other political leaders, uh, when they're talking off the record or or not speaking uh, for the government, uh, have a much different and much more skeptical view of, of their Asian neighbors. And in particular, the popular view remains um, really quite skeptical of, uh, of, of closer ties with, with, with countries uh, in Asia, in particular uh, in China. And so it it does seem uh, to me that if you look on the ground in the Russian Far East, you'll find very little evidence of uh, the turn to the East that Putin talks about in his speeches at all, other than a couple of new infrastructure projects, a couple of bridges built, the university renovated. Um, there's really not a lot of substance to the turn to the East. And in fact, I would say uh, something of the opposite, that uh, the Russian Far East now more than at any point uh, in in in, in the past three decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union is more focused on um, on, on, a, on European Russia than ever before. And so I think this too bodes poorly for the long-term impact of Putin's uh, turn to the East, because when you look at how Russia itself is governed, how Russians themselves are thinking, what you'll find is that although uh, polling suggests that many Russians see China as one of their uh, closest partners in the international stage, in fact, when you scratch a little bit deeper, you, you, you find much more skepticism than those uh, headlines uh, suggest. And I think that uh, whenever it is that the, the Putin regime uh, begins to leave the scene, whether with Putin's death uh, at some point or, um, or, or in whatever other fashion, whenever we have a, a new period of political competition in Russia, uh, it will be very easy for uh, one group, one faction to play up on uh, on, on anti-China sentiment uh, as a means of, of, of winning, uh, winning votes and winning support from the Russian populace. And we already see this to a certain extent with the 
anti-Putin opposition in Russia, uh, focusing on, uh, on, on China and on uh, migration from Asian countries is a very popular uh, a theme among the Russian populace. And so it does seem like there's a, a reservoir of popular skepticism about Asia uh, that is, is just waiting to be tapped into by a, um, by, by a politician looking for support. And so when you put all that together, I think the, uh, the, the depths of this, this pivot do look like they're um, not, not nearly as, as, as deep as Putin would like. And, and in many ways, like the previous um, pivots that Russia has made to Asia under the Sophies from the czars, there's, uh, they're heavy on rhetoric, heavy on, on formal statements and, uh, and, and lighter on the, the bigger social and institutional and, and military changes that you would need in order to uh, assert Russian power in Asia over, over a longer duration. So with that, Thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Chris Miller, author of We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. Chris, I actually have one more question for you. Um, what's next for you and where can people find your work? Well, I'm, I'm working now on a, a new book on the political history of the computer chip, um, which which might sound like a, a departure, but it actually emerges from uh my study of, of, of Cold War military technology, and both in, in the US and the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s, there was tremendous investment in microelectronics. Uh, and it's, it's not widely known, but uh, just uh, two or three years after uh, the first computer or the first integrated circuit rather was invented in the United States, uh, the Soviet Union independently of, of, of the US invented its own integrated circuit um, and, and, and tried to it into all sorts of military and space systems. So I'm uh, trying to trace the history of, of, of chips from their uh, invention in the, in the Cold War all the way up to uh, the contemporary debate about semiconductor shortages and their impact on, uh, on U.S.-China uh, uh, economic issues and, and, and military competition um, as well. So it's a story that, again, uh, will we'll have a, a broad geographic arc from, from, from Europe all the way across Russia and, and, and ending in Asia. So that sounds like a book that is extremely well-timed for the moment. Um, but you can find me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. You can find us on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please subscribe. Please continue listening. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends who want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to learn more about who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. Thanks so much for the invitation.